This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by The Witness, a Black Christian Collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk. And joining me today, I have a very special conversation. I'm really excited about this. It's not going to be Jamar Tisby, no man, the myth, the legend today, but we have a special guest, my good friend, Dante Stewart. Long overdue that Dante is on the podcast, and many of you have followed him on Twitter for a long time. Dante is a prescient voice, a voice for this time, a young black man who is doing the work. We like to call him Young Baldwin uh, because he's a speaker and a writer, and he's extremely incisive. And his works have been featured, of course, here at The Witness, a black Christian collective, also Christianity Today, Fathom Magazine, Faithfully Magazine, Sojourners, and so many others. Dante is a writer, a speaker, and a seminarian as well. Also a Clemson grab, but we're not going to hold that against him. (laughs) But Dante is really um, just a passionate voice for justice, a passionate voice for Black identity. And I learned so much in our conversation, hearing him process these things as a young Black man in America, in the Christian space. We talk a lot about tokenism. We talk about what does the church need to do in this season? What do we need to reimagine versus re-education? I thought that was a really interesting um, part of our discussion. Dante is going to be talking to us today about the idea of Black rage and Black anger and how it's holy and righteous. And so I hope that, that you feel seen in this conversation. I hope that Black Christians feel as though this conversation speaks directly to you and your lived experience in the wake of murders like Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and yes, George Floyd. We hope that you feel seen, loved, and valued through this conversation with my good friend, Dante Stewart, right here on Pass the Mic. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. Well, Dante Stewart, thank you for joining us, brother. Hey, let's go. <laughs> Long overdue, I know, right? Yeah, bro. It's I've been, you know, I've been, I've been wondering, man, when y'all was gonna give me a call, bro. <laughs> I was like, I was like, hey, I was like, I was telling my wife, I was like, man, they ain't called me yet, man. I need to start hitting somebody else. I'm like. I'm I'm doing all this writing. I'm like, man, what? You know what? You done written about a dozen articles for us, man, and about three dozen for everybody else, man. Yeah. So I'm just joking, though. I'm totally joking. <laughs> <laughs> no, we need some levity right now. Of anything, yeah. of anything, we need some levity, man. Yeah, and, you know, sure. normally the common interaction that people ask is, 
you know, how are you doing? People ask that. You yeah. know, it seems like a really vapid question right now. But, mm. you know, the question I want to ask you isn't how you're doing, but I really want to ask you from your perspective, how do you think we're doing um, as a black Christian community? Mm. You know, how mm. are we doing? How are we responding to events? I mean, you have mm-hmm. Ahmaud Arbery, of course, and then mm-hmm. George Floyd, and we'll get into some of your writings on both of mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. But how are we doing um, mm. as a community? Because I think that's probably mm. the more important question than us as individuals. Mm, yeah, for sure. A great question. You know, I think I, I think it, it, it's kind of contextualized to which community we found ourselves in as black people. So I think in some sense, you know, I can I can in some sense start where I'm at. Uh, so I'm in I'm situated within the progressive National Baptist Convention. So I'm situated deeply kind of in the black church community, black life, uh, whatnot. And one of the things, you know, that we collectively are wrestling with is you know, how do we, you know, navigate this moment of being, you know, black and angry, black and tired uh, uh, or whatnot and, and, and really trying to figure out a way, you know, how to, in some sense, have some type of hope to keep going in this moment uh, and not even necessarily, you know, that hope with things, things that hope that things will get better as much as, you know, a hope, you know, that would allow us to formulate a certain type of response uh, to everything that's going on. So me and my pastor, we're doing a lot of con- conversing. We actually got on live the other night and we talked about black rage and white silence. And so we, 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 we navigated, you know, what does it mean to be black and furious right now uh, inside of a context where, you know, many of our white counterparts are silent right now. They're wanting to, you know, invite us into like spaces to kind of show, you know, Hey, we're we're about the work, or in some sense, they're hitting us up privately. But yes. uh, yeah, yeah, when it comes, they, yeah, they're they're not incurring any type of risk, and so you know, we are the only ones who are really having to bear the burden of what it means for Black life to not matter in this society. So you know, we 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 got on a live for like two hours, bro. <laughs> and, I mean, we was like really venting. It, it wasn't like uh-huh. nothing, yeah, yeah, it wasn't nothing like planned or anything. It was like a vent where we're so mad and we're trying to figure out, you know, how to respond uh, to this situation um, uh, in, in, in ways that we, we can uh, without also, you know, trying to judge uh, other black folk. Cause you know, that's a, that's, that's what's happening right now at this moment is, you know, it's very easy, particularly as black people to police the responses of black grief when black grief meets black trauma and not even simply black trauma, but when black grief and trauma meets white rage. And so it's not simply, you know, learning how to navigate black rage and its response in our world, but also trying to navigate how to survive white rage (laughs) in the midst of white silence. And so on the one hand, we're navigating that world uh, or whatnot in our context. But if you are black and in a white space, you're just kind of black and confused right now. Right. Of course. <laughs> yeah, and of yeah, course. you're black and confused. And I think, you know, I want to honor that because I was in that space. Many of us have been in that space that like I have my friends who are in the white in, in, in white evangelical spaces right now, you know, asking me, you know, hey, how do you navigate this? How do you do that? And so I think in that space, they're going through 
those stages of grief. So they, I don't know if many of them have hit that black rage yet, uh, but they are going through black grief right now. And I think in a book, um, it was uh, the end of white Christian America, Robert P. Jones at the end for uh, uh, of the book, he, he kind of gave a eulogy for white Christian America. And in his eulogy, he became in some sense a therapist for white uh, evangelical Christians, Protestants and Catholics or like white, white mainline, whatever. Uh, and so he, he says, you know, white Christians, white people, you know, are going through these stages of grief, of denial, of depression, of anger, of bargaining and acceptance. And I would say uh, black Christians in white spaces right now are also kind of dealing with that. Some of them are in denial. Some of them are depressed. Some of them are angry and trying to figure out a way out. Uh, some yeah. And some of them are bargaining with white people to, in some sense, to finally mm. see them as human uh, or whatnot. And in some sense, like that space can be a space of safety psychologically for them simply to feel like a person because this world has so beat out of them the profound reality of black love and black dignity in a white world. World. And so some of them are bargaining and some of them have accepted and just, you know, said, hey, this is my space uh, or whatnot. And so, you know, as black Christians, that's kind of how we're responding. I think, you know, it, it gets in some sense, even one person to try and kind of respond, you know, how people are how black people in general are responding to this. But also, you know, I think one of the main responses of the collective black community, whether we're, whether we're Christian, whether we're Muslim, whether we're religious or not, whether wherever we are uh, or whatnot, uh, the black community in general, we like Fannie Lou Hamer right now, we are sick and tired of being sick and tired. Yes, yes, yes. yes. We are tired of you know, this country showing in very public and violent ways that black lives do not matter. You know, every year, every year, bruh, every single year, there is something that happens that forces in our face that black lives don't matter and that your response to this needs to be apathy. And you need yeah. to stay in your place. And I think, you know, as collective people, we're black and tired right now. Man, that's so helpful. Um, thank you for taking the time to break that down because it really it really summarizes a lot of what I've been feeling, I think, as well, from the context of especially navigating relationships with black people who are in white evangelical spaces or predominantly mm -hmm. white spaces. And, and in truth, we're all in predominantly white spaces in some way, shape, or yes, form. Yes, exactly. Way. If, if we're not necessarily in that physical space or in that church space, we're still mm. under the white gaze. Mm. Um, and so I, I've been honest about this from the standpoint of, I don't really know how much advice to give people anymore. And I think it connects with mm -hmm. the way in which you're talking about anger. Mm. And you wrote something in sojo.net that I really want to kind of unpack. And I think it's helpful for us to think through. And the title of your article is Black Rage in an Anti-Black World is a Spiritual Virtue. Yeah, And man, I've been really thinking about that. That's a powerful title and it's a powerful article mm. to process the fury that I'm feeling. Mm. And one of the things that you say in the article, a quote that jumped out at me was, you said, and I quote here, rage shakes us out of our illusion that the world as it is, is what mm. God wants. Mm. And I think the word illusion is, is particularly important in the context of our loyalty to things as they are. 
our mm-hmm. loyalty to a nostalgic view of a person, of a relationship, mm-hmm. of a people, mm-hmm. of a church. Can you mm-hmm. talk a little bit about the tyranny of loyalty to places that oppress us, to places mm-hmm. that marginalize us? Because I think it's something for people, and, and we have so many people who are in predominantly white spaces who listen mm-hmm. to the podcast, but so many Black Christians who are just trying to navigate life. And, and it seems as though we're trying to cling to this illusion. And this mm-hmm. illusion is always... Is always um, it's always refuted by the natural course of events. Mm. But how do you, how do you explain, or what do you think is important for us to understand about the illusion mm. um, of the world as it is? <laughs> yeah, that's real good. That's real good. So if, if I have to even think back to my own story, um, why did I believe the illusion? Uh, I, in, in that essay, in, in that essay, I kind of, you know, in some sense, I'm very transparent in that essay and very vulnerable. Like there are, and actually, uh, there are stories that I actually included in that essay, uh, that didn't make it into it, uh, 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 into the final copy of that particular essay where I, I, I kind of tell the story where, you know, I was immersed in the white evangelical space and, you know, I was the one who was selected, you know, to be, you know, the one, the black guy to lead the church through bloodlines, through Piper's bloodlines. I was the chosen one, bro. I was black Moses. I was, I was, man, I was, I was the chosen one. I was Daniel in the lion's den. I was Nehemiah. I, I was the chosen one yeah, to, yeah, to, yeah. <laughs> to, to lead us through John Piper's bloodline. And you know, in that particular space that I was in, you know, I go on to say, you know, I was the first, probably the first one to be black and to be preaching in that church that started in eight. I think it was something crazy like 1881, if my memory serves me correctly. But then, you know, the illusion in some sense is rooted in this kind of, you know, I would in some sense call it a type of black exceptionalism. A type, a a type of like, you know, hey, you know, it came with a badge of honor that, you know, you're breaking barriers in this space. Yo, I will never forget this. This literally was a catalytic, catalytic moment in my life. So I came from California. So my wife, we got married right after college, graduated May 9th at Clemson and then got married May 23rd. We living in California. I'm part of white spaces in California in the church, really immersed in the space. I We get stationed back over here uh, in Georgia, where I live now, and I'm inside of this white evangelical church, immersed preaching, teaching, leading, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then I started to work at Enterprise Rent-A-Car. Now, Enterprise Rent-A-Car, wherever the the the, the uh, rental place is situated is kind of in these you you, you see the demographics based on <laughs> where you at i mean i'm talking about where i was at i had hookah smoke blown in my face i mean i had people want to fight me et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It, was, it was just crazy uh uh, uh uh whatnot great times but just crazy times right uh and it was much different than another zip code uh, or, or whatnot. And so, you know, as this is happening, you know, as this, 
you know, I'm in this white space and, you know, I'm at, I'm back around black people for real, for real. My social rhythms and location is now clashing with the social location that I chose. And so in some sense, that's the challenge where, you know, the social narrative that I'm thrown into is different from the social narrative that I've chosen for myself in the white evangelical space. And I'll never forget this, bro. I was in a conversation with one of my friends, Michaela, one of my best friends to this day. And Michaela, we was talking about like race and stuff like that. And I was like, what about black on black crime and this and that? And this is like in 20. 20- oh, I was that guy. I was that guy because I was, I was like, there too. I know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, bro. I was black on black crime. And I was doggone, you know, protesters need to, you know, are uncivilized. They need to do this and do that. And yeah, be more like King and was like, you know, that's not the way of Jesus, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And Michaela um, said to me uh, or whatnot, she said, Stu, she was pissed too. She was mad. Uh, She said, Stu, um, she said, you know, you, Stu, <laughs> she was like, yo. It's okay. You can stay pissed. It's fine. Okay, good, good. Okay, good. Y'all should have seen this interaction just now. I was like, oh, man. <laughs> you good. You good. I saw you look like, okay. uh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Nah, you good. You can stay pissed. Right. Yeah, yeah, so. Like race. Come on, dog. Yeah, okay, good. Perfect. She, Michaela was like, yo, Stu, she was like, you know, and I won't say this, but she said, you know, she said, Stu, you don't have a darn thing insert other word um to offer black people and you know yeah when that happens bro you have a choice that you can make when you are around black people again and you are in a white space and you see all the things that are going on in our society particularly to those who are looking like you at some point you're gonna have to deal with with that question, what does my faith have to say to our black reality? Hmm. And you can either stay and choose to live in this illusion, or you can embrace that statement that Michaela told me and deal with it and make the courageous decision to say, I want to see better. And so, yeah. That is, um, that is so helpful from the sense of what you have to offer someone. Mm-hmm. That's so helpful. And, and it's different because uh, oftentimes what we have to offer people, it comes in conflict with and it, it runs up against what others in power have to offer us. Exactly. And so we have to place real primacy on what is more important, what others have to offer us versus what I have to offer my people. Mm, and exactly. In thinking about that, you know, I was thinking when you were talking about this in the article because I've been in this this place myself, being in first per- first black person to preach at mm-hmm. church that used to have KKK members on the deacon mm-hmm. board, or a church, you know, first you know church uh, first black pastor to preach at a church that you know used to ban interracial marriage or whatever mm-hmm. it may be, mm-hmm. even though I'm in a black church setting, and so it, you know, I was curious. Is there even a value in the presence of that anymore? Like, is there even a value in being the first to break a barrier? Like, what is what is that even? What value is that? Because you said something before we got on that I thought was extremely um, 
was was extremely moving. You said, I don't want our best work to go somewhere. I want our best work to be for us, not for something else. And I want to give you the yeah. opportunity to say that. Phrase, <laughs> okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, yeah, because sure. I think it's, we, we are so infatuated with being the first and we're so infatuated yes. with being the person to be relied yes. upon. And yes. I think it comes from this per- perverse sense of, of self-importance and exceptionalism mm-hmm. that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And so is there even a value to that? You know, that's just something mm-hmm. I was thinking about. Is there a value to being a first black, whatever, whatever mm-hmm. it may be, first black person mm-hmm. to be in this space, first black person to, mm-hmm. you know, run this Christian mm-hmm. organization? What mm-hmm. is the value of that today? Mm-hmm. I think, you know, on a historical level, I think there is value to that because on the historical level, your name will forever be recorded in the annals of history. And so in some sense, you know, when when one reads your name uh, uh, or, or whatnot, you know, they will forever mem- remember you as, you know, breaking that barrier. So when Brown versus Board of Education happened, you know, we saw if you haven't if if, if, if listeners, if you haven't, you know, checked out uh, Eyes on the Prize uh, or, or whatnot. Essential. essential. Yeah. Essential. Essential documentary. Long. Uh, or whatnot. It's probably going to take you about a year to get through now. It's going to it's, it is long. It's, it's long now. It's, it's long winded, but it's it, you know it's, it's it's good. It's not hot dog burnt hot dogs on paper plates. It's actually filet mignon on fine china. So you know it's a really good thing. And we remember from eyes in the prize all you know the courage of black people in this world you know who indeed were first to break barriers uh uh in in particular places you know being the first to you know integrate a school being a first to become a mayor being a first to uh whatever go 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 to a university or uh get a degree and so one of the things I think about being a first, I think the value is, yes, it's a historical value uh, uh, to it. Uh, but the question that I face today, looking back on it, and I think black people will deal we, we in some sense dealing with this question all the time is when I, when I am a first, what has it cost me personally and what does it cost us collectively? That's it. Yeah. And and so, you know, in some sense, there's a beautiful Toni Morrison quote uh, in an essay that she wrote uh, entitled The Sight of Memory. I think it was an essay uh, for the Tanner Lectures on the Humanities, which is a really good lecture series uh, uh, that's going on. That's been going on for some time now. And in the essay, you know, The Sight of Memory, uh, Toni Morrison kind of, you know, navigates memory as you know, a powerful force in shaping the future. So she would say that memory allows us to ponder the actual, but it also it also allows us to imagine the possible. So memory allows us to ponder the actual, but imagine the possible. So if I was to flip Tony's Tony Morrison's quote, when we're the first, it allows us to imagine what's possible at the expense of pondering what's actual. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And so when W. E. Du Bois, yeah, when, when 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 Du Bois goes and he gets this PhD from Harvard University, we can imagine the possible. When, you know, somebody has broken barriers in the business, in the political, in the church, in the sports world, we can imagine the possible. 
But oftentimes, usually it is the case when we look in history that those who have been the first, we have lost the ability to ponder the actual. And so when I think about my own story, oftentimes when it when you're the first, you have too much to lose, to be honest, about the situation that you entered in. That's so good. Yeah. So, you, yeah. yeah, yeah, you have too much to lose. So, you know, I can't be black and angry lest I lose my job. I can't be black and tired, kind of like Nehemiah, when Nehemiah and, and we, we should get into this uh, or whatnot about about, you know, you know, ways that the evangelical space has taught us how to read biblical narratives that in some sense uh, continue to not only to suppress us, but also to oppress us and to keep us silent. So we, we should definitely get into this. But when we look at Nehemiah's story, Nehemiah, he's a cupbearer. So he, he he's struggling with, you know, having to show emotion and what his emotions would mean for him uh, or whatnot. We don't know. Maybe Nehemiah was a first, but we need to ask the question, how did he get there? Babylon, they killed their people. <laughs> they they took their resources. They they raped their women, children, uh, uh, or whatnot, and they 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 were very violent. And he, and he, he might have been a first, but how did he get there? And what does that cost the larger community? And Nehemiah, that is a, in some sense, relevant narrative in my sanctified preacher imagination uh, that would be able to, you know, navigate, you know, what does it mean to be black in these spaces while also trying to navigate with what it means to be the first and what does that cost and not simply me, but cost in our community. And when that time comes when you get word about what's happening in your community. When you get word, you see you see that cop's foot uh, knee on his neck in very public ways. You see Amar Arbery happen. You see Ferguson happen. You see the white rage in Trump and you see the silence and complicity of those who have been charged uh, to uh, love you in the way you know that they're for me. And it's even weird for me saying that, uh, thinking yeah, about being yeah. black in the white space. It's hard. Yeah. <laughs> I'm telling you, man, it's hard, you know, for people who have long uh, been trained how to see you as less than to actually love you more than you can imagine. And so we, 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 we can, wow. we can, we can, hmm. we can deal with that on another day. But, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. I think Nehemiah has relevance of, you know, what is, you know, yes, it's relevant to have, to be the first, but I need to ask, how did I get there and what is it costing me and us in as a collective community? Man, that's so helpful. Um, and I'm glad you talked about memory too. You know, you mentioned this in your Ahmad Arbery essay on CT. You talked about how memory calls us forward, like to a better future and how mm-hmm. memory connects with our future. Mm-hmm. I'm playing off that Toni Morrison concept. And, mm-hmm. you know, there was something as we think about memory and as we think about being first and being exceptional and mm-hmm. as we think about just how we respond to things um, in your Black Rage essay, um, you mentioned something about rage becoming the public expression of a theological truth, mm. you know, and that mm. theological truth is that black lives matter to God. Mm. And, and so most mm. of us breeze past that, but I think there's something implicit in what you're saying that's a corrective to the larger Christian community, which is yes. that emotion can be truth. 
Yes, exactly. Emotional expression can be true. And most of us don't see that. And it's interesting, I think, because for, for many of us, we, we process our emotions of fear mm-hmm. and we don't question them. Like, especially mm. in white settings, they process mm. fear easily, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but they, they don't question their fear. They don't question mm. their apprehension. They don't mm. question um, their consideration of what could possibly happen if this, if not, if I don't yes. have a weapon, yes. if I go into this neighborhood, et cetera. Yes. And that is treated through truthful actions. But what mm. you're connecting emotion to is theological truth. So, so yes. what I want to ask you is, how can emotion be truth? Explain that to people. How is emotion truth? Because many of us are afraid to express rage because yes. we think it is outside of the theological bounds. Yes. Yet I think there is actually a theological yeah. underpinning to it. Exactly. As you're mentioning it. So exactly. how can emotion be truth, Dante? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And you know, in some sense, that's the reason why I wrote this piece is because you know, in 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 this moment, you know, we as black people, as we're trying to navigate this moment, you know, it's very easy to see ourselves through a Du Boisian double consciousness. Now, let me kind of sure, sure. let me let me work that out real quick uh, or whatnot. So, W E B the uh, the boys. Uh, I, I talk with a list, so I gotta really. Uh, <laughs> that's a, that's a tongue twister. Tongue twister. The boys uh, would say, you know. Uh, in the souls of black folk, he says, oftentimes, you know, we have to see ourselves as black, uh, but in some sense through the white gaze that, you know, we're black in this country, but oftentimes we're trying to be black in a country that does not love us back. We love this country, but this country does not love us. And so in some sense, it's like uh, the 1619 Project uh, when Nicole Hannah-Jones opened up that opened an essay, you know, about black people and democracy, that we have been the perfectors of democracy in America, that, you know, she opened up that essay talking about um, her father and her father, um, you know, having the American flag uh, or, or whatnot. She she was wondering, like, why uh, or whatnot. And so in some sense, the boys would say, you know, there's always this kind of disparity uh, of, of, of or this kind of war within the selves between being black uh, and being American, being black and seeing ourselves through the white gaze. And so, you know, if we're if we kind of read that through a psychological lens, we could say that the Du Bois and self-consciousness becomes the black coping mechanism of what it means to live in the anti-black world. It becomes a coping mechanism to see oneself as black uh, uh, through the white gaze uh, or whatnot. It, in some sense, is to realize that I'm black uh, and I need to survive. Now, for me, that's that's a defensive kind of coping mechanism that the boys is setting for us. He's kind of telling the story for me. I wanted to go on the offensive to give theological language of this double consciousness. I wanted to be uh, someone who get, who who says we're black and we're going to go on the offensive and correct the white gaze and give us a new gaze and new theological language, which is in some sense, all theological language. It is, you know, if, if in some sense, we read the text. Yeah, if we read if we read the text, not from the lens of how white and European Christians have, in some sense, forced us 
uh, to read in history uh, or, or whatnot. One simply has to look at the slave Bible to see this. One simply, you know, has to look at Frederick Douglass, you know, quote that, you know, I love the Christianity of Christ, but I don't like, I really don't like, you know, the Christianity of this land. And so the Christianity of the Christianity of Christ and the Christianity of land is not a process that is neutral. No, both of these are actually actively warring for one's imagination. Uh, they're, they're actually at odds with one another, trying to navigate how one reads the Bible, how one reads one's story, how one reads one's society and what it can be and can become. And so for me, when I look at the Bible, let me go back to Nehemiah. One, when, when I think about, you know, black rage as a, in some sense, the public expression of a theological truth, that, that black rage becomes a public expression. The reason I wrote that section, it, it grew out, it, this section grew out of my devotional reading of Nehemiah's story. Uh, can I preach for a little bit? Can, 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 Please go can, ahead. Can, go can, ahead. Can, go can, I, can I? Can I? Can I? Got an organ on me, but you know. Okay, <laughs> it's all it's all good. Can, 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 I, can, can I go to the text? Take me to the text. To the text. So in Nehemiah's story, uh, we kind of already kind of set the context of Nehemiah's story earlier. You know, in Nehemiah's story, Nehemiah is existing in Babylon, which is a which is a existence that sees him not simply as second class, but it exploits his dignity and it constantly forces on him the disrespect of what it means to exist in this uh, reality. So Nehemiah is constantly being re-traumatized, constantly being reminded of his second class citizenship, constantly being reminded that he has to suppress his emotions uh, about uh, the history and the memory that lives deep down within his bones. So Nehemiah gets story about his people. He gets story that, you know, the walls have been broken down. And when we go to the walls in the Hebrew Bible, it's not simply, you know, this kind of spiritual uh, truth of protection, but it's this kind of existential reality of the walls is anything in our community that allows us to have political, social, economic, and cultural life that we can say that we are a people and we are building meaning and a meaningful world together. And so Nehemiah gets this word that, you know, hey, uh, the walls have been torn down. And Nehemiah, you know, responds that in the way that many of us have responded. Nehemiah is sad at this reality. He is sad that things are happening to his people and to his community. And so Nehemiah prays. He says, Lord, give me favor with you. Give me favor with man so that we can go back and rebuild the walls. And so Nehemiah, uh, he goes about this work and Nehemiah, you know, goes and travels back to Jerusalem but the role it goes back to the people but the role is always met with opposition and the type of opposition that Nehemiah met is an opposition that doesn't just want to distract him it wants to destroy him and so it's so they lie on Nehemiah you know trying to upset uh, uh, the work and so Nehemiah has to make the courageous decision not simply to pray to God but to also become the action to win which his prayers would be answered. And so when we wow, go to wow, the text, good. we have good. to 
realize yet that as Howard Thurman would say, it doesn't make much sense to pray for something that you don't want to partner with God to become the answer. And so Nehemiah would understand that he was not simply his ancestor's wildest dreams when he got up out of Babylon and went back to his people. But Nehemiah also became his uh, ancestors unanswered prayers. And so his reality of going back there was the very outworking of partnering with God uh, to answer the prayers. And so Nehemiah goes to, to his people and he realized, I think this is in chapter five. I love how uh, uh, some of the translation committees have kind of translated this text and kind of uh, 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 kind of outlined this text for us. It's some, some of them simply say Nehemiah responds to injustice. And so you know, we haven't oftentimes heard texts preached this way, that there is actually a way to respond to injustice. So Nehemiah, he goes back to the community and he gives us a framework of how our rage becomes an expression of a theological truth. And so Nehemiah, he sees injustice. He gets angry at injustice. He thinks about it. And then Nehemiah brings charges against those whom are committing and sustaining injustice. And so Nehemiah, his rage, his his anger, the Bible said he thought it over and he was angry about it. And, you know, our anger, it is our anger. Anger, our deep-seated pain, our anger, and our rage that gets us out of this illusion that this gross system of inequality, expectation, and disrespect is the will of God for any people's life. And so as Christians... As Christians in particular, you know, and people, all people of goodwill and good faith, we have to say that rage, as I write, becomes the work of love that stands against an unloving world. And so Nehemiah responds to injustice with anger to say, I can't simply think about it, but I need to get angry about it and I need to do something about it. I need to mobilize against it. And so I love this part of the narrative around verse uh, 10 to 13, where the Bible says he brings charges and they respond to his charges with this way. Man, this thing about shout me and bless me, brother. They respond to Nehemiah's anger and charges. He says, y'all need to commit to reparations for the damage that has been done against our people. Y'all, I don't know how y'all going to do it or whatnot. And I can give you some suggestions, but y'all need to repair the damage that has been done emotionally, psychologically, culturally, politically, and economically. You need to restore what has been lost in the people. Their dignity has not simply been lost, but their destiny has also been lost. And we need to restore both of those. And so then this thing blessed me, man. They responded that we're going to do whatever you said. And this is what the Bible said. It says that all of the people said, amen. Amen. That's what they said. Yeah. Mighty God. Man, that's powerful. And 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 it's so amazing that you break that down because, you know, again, most of us do not read the text that way. Exactly. And we do not read from that lens and we don't read from, you know, as you I think so aptly said earlier, that social location, right? Yes. Um 
Man, that's so helpful. And and you know, as we think about that, I think it's important to kind of talk through some of the particular ways as well that not even just in particular texts, but overarching, like our theology and our faith expression has been manipulated and turned against us. You know, so you know, isn't it the great manipulation that 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 something that can be liberative turns into a a force of oppression? You know, something that should be loving turns into a conduit for hate. Yes, exactly. You know, one of the one of the chief objections many people have to um, the faith and how many people, black people, are trying to reconcile that. So, as you're seeing, as you're seeing this, what are some ways that our faith is being manipulated and turned against us? You know, in an intellectual sense, in an overarching mm-hmm. sense, from the thirty thousand foot view, you know, what are some of the lies that are being told to us that we should reject and we should angrily, um, furiously push push back on? Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's back to that framework, and I and I can't take you know I can't take. Uh, credit for this framework. Uh, it's a framework that uh, Charles Mills, Charles W. Mills, uh, would use in the racial contract in the book, The Racial Contract. I think uh, where he would say, you know, in some sense that you know, if we're talking about racial justice, then we need to dismantle race, second class citizenship, uh, racist exploitation, and racist disrespect. And so, if we're thinking about ways, you know, that we have that our faith has been manipulated, it this this the way that we have been trained, particularly in our seminaries and in our churches uh, or whatnot, it. particularly in the white spaces uh, that many of us either have come from, gone into, or existing in right now. Uh, This space has shown that, you know, black people are second-class citizens when it comes to reading theology, when it comes to doing theology, and that their second-class citizenship must find the find its legitimacy in what white Christians think about black theology. And I want to say this like very clearly at the end of the day, black people have not had any freedom worrying about uh, white uh, uh, thoughts on what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, We have not been black and Christian and in some sense, the test of our legitimacy falls on white people because every time throughout history and I'm not going to I'm not just saying this. I'm going to I'm going to quote some some white brothers and sisters, particularly Raul Niebuhr. Uh, it, it, it has been in history that, you know, when black people want to create their reality, want to become uh, uh, agents in their destiny. Uh, white brothers and sisters have been more concerned about charity versus liberating justice. And so let me work that out a little bit real quick. Yeah, no, definitely. So so charity, in some sense, you know, is glad to have us in the number, is glad to have us, you know, inside the space and to market us, you know, to the masses, to, in some sense, to show that they're being not racist or, or whatever, that, you know, we, 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 we finally, when they get like one or two or three black people, they can finally say, we're becoming a multi- uh, ethnic, mind you, they, a lot. A lot of them don't even say multiracial, uh, and, and I think we need to change that language because America doesn't have an ethnicity problem. America has a racist problem, and so we can sir, get yes, ethnicities together, but we need to deal with the racial terror and nightmare that we all are living in. 
And so it, it, this, this kind of theologizing in our seminaries and in our histories and how we tell the story of theology in America in some sense relegates black people to a great idea, but not a great transformative force as it relates to what it means to have good news in this God forsaken land. And so black people in some sense are seen as second class citizens uh, and we, our, our, our legitimacy must be tested against, you know, the white lie. Logic, the kind of white narrative. So what does these reform people think about our theology? What does, you know, uh, these seminaries think about our theology, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, or, or whatnot? We can't get too, we can't get too far out of that mark or, you know, they're going to think something about us that we're, you know, uh, uh, being troublemakers, we're upsetting things uh, 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 yeah. or, or whatnot. And so not only are we second class when it comes to theology, but also we are exploited. And so our the best of our black thinkings are to build a kind of white Christian America. You know, our the best of our black thinking becomes, you know, inside of this white space. And like you were saying earlier, we have to ask ourselves the question, is the best of our work and the best of our intellect and the best of our years going to be for white people? Or is the best of our th- years and in intellect going to be for building a black reality that loves ourselves deeply, that loves God, that loves our neighbor, that loves our world? Because at the end of the day, we have to refuse to to, in some sense, give these institutions and organizations who are already well off, who are not burdened with the tragedy of blackness in America, who are making money off our black bodies and not trying to shape our black minds for a black reality, who are in some sense, you know, making us super marketable, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We have to say at the end of the day, we are losing way too much to uh, stay in this place that they want us because at the end of the day, bruh, Babylon didn't come up with the idea to send Nehemiah back. Mm. Can we be honest? Come on. Yeah, come on. Can man. we come be on. honest? Babylon never had a liberating agenda for Nehemiah. Babylon didn't care that whether Nehemiah, you know, uh, uh, what Nehemiah did in his private life or whatnot, what what he did when, you know, everybody who came from his community who was still there, you know, was still under the brand of Babylonian kind of logic, but still kind of gathering in their own little spaces and being mad privately. Uh, they didn't care, you know, whether they made these conferences for black people uh, while still being tied to the white space. They didn't care whether that happened because at the end of the day, you know, at the end of the day, you know, that doesn't change anything. That doesn't deal with a given system of injustice that we are living in that has uh, kind of robbed us of dignity, robbed us of our agency in shaping this world. And so Babylon never came up with that agenda. It was Nehemiah who came up with that agenda, who prayed to God. And guess what? At the end of the day, Nehemiah's courage did not come from his conversation with King Artaxerxes. It came from his courage in his conversation with God. King Artaxerxes was only the conduit of this kind of agenda for him. But it was God who gave him the energy, who gave him the force to 
uh, go and try and rebuild what has been lost. And I think, you know, when we're talking about Christian faith in America, too oftentimes black people are so well, I'm a name drop real quick and forgive me if I step on some toes real quick uh, or whatnot. Too often, too many black people in America, in a post-Katrina America, which we're kind of coming of age in, we young black people uh, coming of age in a post-Katrina America, in a post-Barack Obama America, in a post-Trump, in a post-Black Lives Matter, in a post-Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown and all these countless hashtags. You know, when we think about this reality that's happening uh, uh, or whatnot, this this space is not going to, in some sense, help us learn the language and the theology of a James Cone. It's going to make sure that we learn the theology of a John Calvin. And come on, bro. And, and JC too or many, JC, that's a question. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Too many young black people good, know how to expound yeah. the historical narrative of John Calvin, but they don't ha- know how to navigate the existential terror of James Cone. Come on, bro. That's and so, good, Nia, yeah. And so, good. Nehemiah, Nehemiah, in some sense, and Daniel Nim in the Lions. Then, hey, hey, bro, we we understand them or whatnot. It's cool, but the reality is that you know theology ri- arises out of a community's response to a living God who has actions in history. And so, as we navigate this theological story, we have to ask ourselves: What is good news for Black people in a America in 2020, when we are lynched, when we have policies and practices that are against us, what is the good news? Like I text a pastor, pastor texted me this morning. I won't drop that name. That's my dude. I went, I love him to death. Uh, he texted me this morning. He was talking about everything that was going on. And I said, you know, Hey, I'm like, what is good news that you have to offer for black people in this moment? You know, too often, you know, we have relegated James Cone to this kind of language of heretic because James Cone had the courage to talk about white supremacy. And so, you know, James Cone had the courage to talk about the cross as being connected to the lynching tree. James Cone had the courage to navigate the story of when Jesus addressed legion. He didn't want to read it simply as the spiritual power of Jesus. Jesus to liberate one from demonic oppression. He want to navigate that, you know, Jesus liberates a community from uh, uh, this kind of demonic structure that sees them as less than. So when Jesus addresses legion and he casts legion into the swine, Jewish people don't eat swine. Only only Romans who wanted to come through their land to have meat whenever they needed wanted the swine for the people. So when Jesus cast out the demon into the swine and the swine cast itself into the went off the cliff, Jesus was not simply saying, I want to liberate this brother from the psychological dimensions and the existential dimensions of what it means to be uh, demonically oppressed. 
But I want to liberate this community from being bound to the tragic dimensions of being second class citizens who are exploited and constantly disrespected. And black people need to take a hiatus from reading white theology for a little minute. It's all right. We love white brothers and sisters. We love them deeply. I love. I'm, I'm OK. Here we go. I got that white friend. I got white friend. Oh, what not? I love. Nice. My yeah. I love my white brothers deeply and my white sisters deeply, but how can someone who asks me, Hey, I need you to teach me about race, lead me to think about race. It's impossible. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And I think that's such a good word for us as far as our framing and the way in which we perceive and interact with theology and the ways in which our faith is, is slowly teaching us to hate ourselves Yes. Um, or as or as Malcolm X would say, giving us that mask of self-hate and self-doubt. Mm. Um, you know, one last thing I think is that's so important, I think this is gonna help so many people, is this concept of education. And often we talk about education in a racial sense. Um, you know, what do we channel our rage into? And people talk about mm. action as far as education, and typically mm. it's it's education for other people. And mm-hmm. Um, it's education for, you know, a white majority. But I think what's so fascinating about this is, you know, Carter G. Woodson said once that, you know, every black person has, has two educators, basically, you know, education that, that he is, that is given to us, but then the education that we give ourselves. Exactly. And it was so important, you know, kind of spinning off what you're talking about, even with the, the regurgitation of white theology and things like that. Um, I was thinking about the education we give ourselves, and I was thinking about it in the context of of black women. And I think it's so important to name mm-hmm. black women. You know, we talk mm-hmm. about George Floyd, and we talk about Ahmaud Arbery, mm-hmm. but you know, we we don't talk enough about Breonna Taylor and Atatiana exactly. Jefferson, and, mm-hmm. um, Rakia Boyd, and Renisha McBride, and Sandra Bland, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and so many others that are nameless and faceless to us. There's mm-hmm. that sense of erasure, and it's so important to to receive an education that values all of our people and that values all of our experiences. And so thinking about that education, how do we educate ourselves, man? How do we educate ourselves Mm -hmm. in the midst of anger? Because I I think anger is necessary. You know, there's Mm -hmm. one writer who called it naked anger. I love that Mm -hmm. that analogy Mm -hmm. and that phrase because Mm -hmm. I think it serves such a purpose and a utility. I think of Jesus going in the temple and and flipping the tables and whipping them boys. Uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) He was whipping them boys. Yeah, Uh, yeah, bro. And I know people are like, ah, he wasn't hitting them. I'm like, they was whipping them. Yeah, And so as you you think about that, Jesus in the midst of anger is actually educating people. Yes. He's educating his own people by saying, this is my father's house. And so the connection to my father's house is I want to I want you to understand the Godhead and the nature of which you're supposed to yes. just treat God's property, right? Exactly. Um, and what you're supposed to bring into God's property. And so, as we consider that, man, how do we educate ourselves in a time of anger, and how do we educate ourselves mm-hmm. in a way that's going to promote us to action? I mm-hmm. think that's just such an important thing for Black Christians to hear in this time. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's good. I think education, you know, happens on the personal and the public and the kind of pulpit dimension. So I see, you know, as a minister, you know, I think there is a uh, integral and integrated relationship between uh, the public, the pulpit and the pew. 
And so as we think about all three of those integrations, I mean, all the three of those kind of relationships and roles, I think in some sense there must be, you know, a, 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 a integration of them in very systematic and strategic ways. And so if we think about the pulpit, you know, preaching Nehemiah, not simply as a good story of Nia, of God's action in Nehemiah's life, but to read it as Rowan Williams would say in his book, being Christian, Rowan, I think it was being Christian when he had that section on the Bible, to realize that this is not a story about God's action in Nehemiah's life. We should read Nehemiah as a story of God's action in our lives as well. And so when we read stories of them, we can see ourselves in their stories and we can say, this is how somebody responded well. This is how somebody's responded not so well to God. And how do we understand our stories in light of God's stories in hope that we can tell a better story together mm, today? Mm. And so the pulpit has to be the place uh, on a ministerial level uh, or an ecclesial level uh, to be able to educate us uh, or whatnot. And I'm, and for me, I like to use language of imagination. We have to reimagine uh, or whatnot, because in some sense, for me, re-educate is very static. Reimagine in some sense is a process. Yeah. Where it's more like a dance rather than, you know, kind of look living in a classroom. Imagination allows one to see that, you know, in some sense, God just doesn't want to teach me inside of a book. God's, God wants to teach me on the streets. And so, like I say that when we talk about, you know, black rage, what black rage, black rage becomes this kind of reimagination work that it allows me to see that this world as it is, is not the way that God wants it. And that this world as it is, is not, you know, uh, the way that it should be. And that it allows us to realize that in some sense, like, you know, we need to try and reimagine life together, life together, building a common life together. You know, we're not trying to create a Christian nation. What we're trying to do is be Christians, be black and try and create a more loving and just world together. And so that education work must be beyond the pulpit work goes beyond simply, you know, the needs of the pulpit, the, 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 that work goes to the lives of those in the pew. Uh, and those who have lives in the pew, all of us coming from the life of the public. And so the way that we navigate conversations that's happening in the pew and this kind of like imagination work together, we must not forget that we must build life together in the public and that the public has something to teach us about how we uh, imagine ourselves inside of the church space. What should be priorities inside of the church space. And if this seems like dangerous language, you know, we need to look at, in some sense, the story of the Good Samaritan. We have to realize that the Levite and the priest, you know, got just close enough to the one who who's on the ground for them to be listed in the story. But the one who remember mm. is the one who stopped. And, 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 you know, we have to navigate that, that we have to realize, like, you know, we need this integral relationship between the pulpit, the pew and the public. Now, that's kind of on a 30,000 foot view, you know, in, in my personal life. 
we as Christians, we have to take seriously this language of the image of God in other people. If I believe that people are created in the image of God, then that must means that they have something of legitimate value to offer me, not simply me to offer them. And so as Christians, if we're being honest as Christians, too often we have related to our neighbors as sinners first and then Im- image bearers second. Oh, yes, we have. Yes, And sir. that yes, changes how you relate to another person. When you relate to someone as first sinner, the, uh, then image of uh, a, a person as an image bearer, this in some sense is always going to have a narrative of difference. You're going to always be kind of, you know, limited in your ways of being human and trying to learn and build a life together. And so Christians, we need to read beyond simply theology. We need to read beyond these things. We need to read, you know, I I, I read everybody. I mean, I'm talking about I read. You have to. You know, yeah, I read everybody because in some sense, I realize that as a person, I am situated within the world. My social narrative is this. I am black. I am a Christian and I am trying to learn how to navigate both of those realities in a world with other people. And so if we're talking about even in Christian faith, uh, uh, not simply, you know, Imago Dei, if we're talking about Christians, it doesn't make much sense for me to preach and to praise a reality in eternity where these voices around the throne are bearing witness to God's action in eternity. If they are bearing witness in eternity, then it must mean that they have bear witness in the present. And if they have bear witness in the present, then I need to be learning from them in the present because if I'm not learning from them and living with them and trying to build their life for them in the present, I sure ain't going to catch the Holy Ghost and love them when we are in glory. It just ain't going to happen like that. It ain't going to happen. And so we need to learn how to read other people. There, there is nothing, you know, uh, spiritual about uh, lacking a type of intelligence that's willing to read other people. There is nothing spiritual about that. Like, like the spiritual reality is that I'm willing to be a Christian in this world while navigating life with other people, reading them and loving them with not simply if I'm up to love my neighbor as myself or love my, you know, the second commandment is like it. You know, we should love our God with our mind, with our heart, with our spirit, and with all our strength. And the second command is like it. So I should love my neighbor with my mind, with my heart, with my spirit and with my That's strength. And that becomes an integral reality of loving God as well. And so I read everybody. I think Christians need to be reading everybody and trying to, you know, read from diverse groups, whether they, you know, are in your community or not, whether they agree with you or not uh, or whatnot, because the reality is that we Christians have sucked at, you know, building a life together. And that's because we don't have models of that. You know, I tell white people all the time, you know, the reason why white brothers and sisters are struggling in this moment is because most of their models have been violent white supremacists. supremacists. Mm, mm. 
And mm. so we need a white liberation theology right now. We wow. need white wow. liberation theology. You need to be liberated from whiteness. You need to be liberated from white supremacy. You need to be liberated from what Eddie Glaude would call the value gap that values white lives and white communities more than other lives and other communities, white pain and white rage and white anger more than other communities. And so, you know, white brothers and sisters, they don't have models of liberation and love. So therefore, they're struggling in this moment to figure out how to answer the questions. And so therefore, they need white brothers and sisters, and we all need better models of that who will model, particularly for us as Christians, who will model being both, you know, for me, black and Christian and seeing those as integrals. Because the reality is this, I don't care how many, I wrote this in one of the essays that I wrote for y'all, uh, to, to the letter to the young black Christian. I don't care how many books you read, no matter how many Bible verses you quote, no matter how, how upstanding or morally upright you are, I can be best friends with with Craig Groeschel. I can be best friends with John Piper. I can be best friends with anybody. I don't care. I can be in their circle. But the reality is that when I step out into this world, they see me first as black. And that means something. And we need to answer that. And I think, you know, our personal education and my education, you know, as a person, you know, this is why I read so ferociously is because I'm trying to live. And, you know, I love like I wrote in that essay on the mod, we love Jesus, but we're also trying to live. And I refuse to live my best life loving white people more than I love my black son. Hmm. hmm. Wow. Whew. That's a word, brother. Man, Dante, Dante Stewart, Young Baldwin. Thank you so much, brother. <laughs> man, Thank you so much pleasure. for coming yeah, on, man. man. You ended uh, your post on Black Rage by saying, until we are, we are all free. We can never rest. Oh right? yes. Um, oh yes. And I think that's just you've you set us on fire for never resting and for doing what we can and channeling our anger. Uh, man, I, I wanted to give you the opportunity before we let you go to just talk a little bit about your podcast, man, which is coming up, and I uh, definitely want people hey. to check it out and and see what's going on. So I talked a little bit about it in in the intro. So man, tell us about the podcast. Yeah, man. I I first thank you. That's pretty dope. Uh, you know, man, I love podcasts. I just love conversations with people. I think you know. You know, the podcast, you know, has catch has caught the traction that it has, you know, because it, it is not like an interview. You get to kind of because in an interview, you know, you go on TV, you have to be mindful of what you say. You got to, you know, you got a certain time to say certain things uh, or whatnot. And so for me, I felt like, you know, the podcast was a space where we can simply, you know, be free and not feel like, you know, we kind of have to be bound to this kind of, you know, professionalism, though, uh, this kind of professionalism that that is not authentic uh, uh, or whatnot. And so for me, uh, me and my friend Modi, we, we love Code Switch. We love On Being. We love, you know, that that social media humans of New yeah, York. Yeah. Uh, and I love, you know, just like various podcasts like this podcast, Pastor Mike and, you know, other podcasts like my friend Annie 
uh, Downs, who has a great podcast. Who else am I listening to? I listen to Correct Rochelle podcast and Albert that Leadership Tate. Pod. Huh? Yeah, that Leadership <laughs> Pod and Albert Tate. Uh, over in Cali and Derwin Gray uh, or whatnot. And I like all the things that they're doing, you know, and we wanted to kind of merge all these type of worlds. Just imagine like stories between, uh, uh, just imagine uh, the humans of New York. Imagine on being podcast with the theological and religious reflection, uh, code switch with, you know, uh, the reflection on race and politics. And, you know, we wanted to create something where we can tell stories. And so the podcast is entitled The Stories Between Us, where I say, you know, stories matter, not just, you know, any story, but our stories that they connect us to ourselves, to one another and to the rest of the world. You know, that this, that these stories don't just connect us, but that it is these narratives that possess power to create a more loving and just world. And so, you know, at the story, my podcast is going to be titled The Stories Between Us and that the stories between us, you know, we're a place where ordinary stories intersect in extraordinary ways. And as we tell these stories, you know, with candor and courage, with imagination and joy, we create better stories together. And maybe one day a better story can be told. So we're going to be dropping yeah, soon awesome. uh, or whatnot, where we're going to be a place where ordinary stories intersect in extraordinary ways. And we got some dope conversations that we got coming up. So check us out. We're going to, we're awesome. going to be dropping soon, real soon. Awesome, man. Thank you so much for being on, bro. I'm excited to listen to uh, these stories and you tell these stories and to continue following you and all your work. So I just say from black man to black man, I appreciate you, brother. Uh, continue yeah. on. Until each one of us is free, uh, we're not oh, going to yeah. stop. So I appreciate you, Dante. Thank you so much for joining us on Pastor Mike. Yeah, for sure, bro. Much love to you. Much love to Pastor Mike. Much love to the witness. Uh, much love to everybody. A lot of body, everybody. <laughs> Y'all take care. Y'all be blessed, man. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.